Welcome to The Jay Martin Show. My name is Jay Martin, and my guest today is David Hay, the co-chief investment officer and co-founder at Evergreen GavCal. He's been in the market making money for clients for over 40 years, and this conversation was super fun. Today, we talk about the future of fiat money and the potential for a hard commodity-backed currency. We talked about demographic crises in Russia, China, and the U.S., why the picture is very different in India, and what that might mean for the future. We talked about the U.S. weaponizing their dollar and OPEC in return weaponizing oil. This conversation was super fun, and I learned a lot. I hope you enjoy it. As always, right beneath this piece of content, there is a link where you can subscribe to my weekly newsletter. I publish every Sunday. I absolutely love writing it and would love to have you join the team. All right, here's David Hay. Enjoy. Okay, guys, welcome to the Jay Martin Show. My name is Jay Martin, and I'm joined right now by David Hay. David, it's great to have you on the program. Thanks for making the time. Of course, Jay. It's an honor to be on here with you, especially given some of your previously uh, guests, invitees who are quite prestigious, including my partner, Louis Gov. Yeah, sounds my, like a lot of them are good friends of yours. You ran through a handful of names. Mate, yeah, my great mate, Grant Williams, who I know kind of had on recently. Yeah, tons of fun. Tons of fun. Okay. Uh, look, here's where I thought we could start today. Uh, we spent the last month obsessing over banking crises, obviously following the SVB fallouts and and all the, the trickle effects and speculation about what could occur next. And uh, you've called out that that's sort of a distraction, distracting us from a much bigger potential crisis, which is the slowdown of the velocity of money and what that could really mean for the broader economy. And so I'd Love it if we could start there. And if you could open up that concept for me a little bit and explain uh, what you think people are missing and, and why. Sure. Well, it really kind of fits in with this bigger picture of one of my kind of personal crusades of the last nine months or so, which is to alert our readers because we do publish a couple of newsletters, free newsletters, by the way, each week. And in those, I've been exhorting people to get out of cash, as in bank accounts, and put it into government securities of some kind to pick up a major yield advantage. But there was also the issue, which I think I didn't appreciate enough, but has become um, you know, front and center, this idea that not only were people getting no return, they were actually at some degree of risk. Now, as it turns out, with the bailouts uh, of you know, the guaranteed uninsured depositors of SBB and Signature Bank, it, it looks like uh, depositors are not going to lose anything, but they could have. In fact, I mean, I'm digressing for a moment, but I, I just I read this great op-ed by Bill Isaac, who used to be the head of the FDIC back in the 70s and 80s. And what they used to do is if this happened, the uninsured depositors would get 80% of their money. The other 20%, they'd get a certificate where if the bank eventually recovered or they were able to sell assets to pay off the uninsured deposits, then they would get all or a portion of that back. But the reason they did that was First of all, you know, if you got 80% of your money back, you, you weren't going to get ruined, probably. But also, it created, you know, some kind of, um, you know, it eliminated moral hazard. It, it created a reason for people to be considerate of the financial health of the institution that they were putting uninsured money into. But putting that aside, it just, it was illogical. I mean, it just defied finance 101 that people were willing to accept, you know, basically zero yield 
to take risk when they could be in government securities and take no risk. Mm-hmm. Well, now what's happening because of these events and all the publicity they garnered, there is a major transition underway of that money. And we're talking something like eight, nine trillion dollars that's been uninsured and is now moving out of the banking system into government securities, you know, mostly short-term T-bills or funds that own short-term T-bills or simply put the money at the Fed, you know, where these guys can get, you know, kind of a risk-free four and a half, five percent return with instantaneous liquidity. So it's, it is catalyzing this, this massive shift, that great sucking sound you hear is money flowing from the banks to the government uh, at the very short end of the curve. And the reason that matters is, is you're aware when it's in the banking system, the money has a very high multiplier effect. In a fractional banking system where banks can be easily levered nine to one, every time they make a loan, that loan tends to come back in the form of another deposit, they make another loan, add, you know, not added for item, but add to about nine times. It's it's you know known as high-powered money. Yes. It has high octane. But when it goes into government securities, it becomes largely inert. In fact, folks like Lacey Hunt, who I respect very much, think that the government multiplier is now negative. In other words, for every dollar the government spends, spends, you get less than that in GDP. Very different than it used to be in the, the boom times of the 50s and 60s. So it's a big deal because, I mean, the, the math, which I know every time you mention an equation, uh, and I was a cinema studies and filmmaking major in college, that's my degree, so I'm certainly no rocket scientist when it comes to math, but... The old equation created by Irving Fisher back in, I think, the 1920s, but way back when, is that M times V equals basically nominal GDP. It was actually P times T, prices times transactions. You know, so the number of transactions times the price of those transactions is basically nominal GDP. The M is the money supply. The V is velocity. Well, money supply is already falling, which is an extremely unusual fact. It's in real terms falling at the fastest rate since the 1930s. So if you get velocity coming down, in addition to that, it has very severe and dire economic implications. And I just have, I've seen very few people write this up. Uh, a couple of exceptions. Mike Wilson has been on this theme from Morgan Stanley, their chief strategist, chief investment officer. Christopher Wood from Greed and Fear, Jeffrey's Greed and Fears has been picking up on it. But for the most part, the V word has not been mentioned. And I think that's just a huge oversight. So yes, I think that's a big deal and it's something that's been greatly overlooked and with, very little has been greatly overlooked with all the ink spilled and digitally and otherwise. So uh, you know, that, I think there's not much I offer that's a little bit of a unique perspective, but I think that one qualifies. Well, let's walk down that path a little bit. How does uh, how does, you know, whether market activity, whether consumer behavior, you know, obviously lending, you know, how do these major buckets shift in a world with massively decreased velocity of money? Well, I think the logical assumption is that bank lending is going to get more stringent and more restricted. And you're already starting to see that with the SLUS, the Senior Loan Officer Survey, is indicating you know, definite spike. It's looking very recessionary. And if you look at deposits, which relates to all this, because, you know, banks can't lend out money they don't have, deposits are falling at the fastest rate uh, in 40 years. And it's also true in Europe, where bank deposits were falling uh, at a very fast clip even before the latest uh, convulsions. That was as of February. It didn't didn't get the uh, collapses of the two banks in there. So, yes, I think there are, you know, significant 
problems and uh, banks are actually reporting that loan demand. So not even their willingness to supply credit, but loan demand is falling at the fastest rate since October of 2008, which was right in the teeth of the, the great recession, global financial crisis. So yeah, I think it's, it's naive to think that this isn't gonna have significant economic reverberations. And the loan demand makes sense, right? You know, just price of money goes up, less people want it. Um, do, you, do you think about bank consolidation in, in, this, in this scenario, David? Is this because, you know, if, if the margins of banks have become compromised, there's less money for them to play with, less business opportunities for them to monetize, the, the biggest will be the last to fail, right? It's the small regional banks, which will be probably the most vulnerable to shifts like this. And so not just people moving from regional banks to big banks for safety reasons, we've seen a lot of that, but also just profitability reasons. Would you expect bank consolidation to continue to accelerate? And is that a, is that a, do you think that's a problem? Well, I think it's got positive and negative to it. I mean, I know in Canada where you're based, there's a lot fewer banks. And so you could make the argument that they're a lot easier to regulate. On the other hand, community banks tend to be the lifeblood of uh, local, you know, local businesses, and and they tend to be closer to their, you know, their, their borrowers and their depositors, so they know more about them, and they're not as bureaucratic. And I think, and, and I guess a footnote to that is, seventy percent of commercial real estate loans are held by smaller banks, mm-hmm. and frankly, that is one of my. I've been saying for a while, I've got two mega risks on that I think are underappreciated this year. One is the, the bursting of the global housing bubble, which was even bigger than the one in 07. And secondly, uh, the very real potential of the U.S. fiscal funding crisis, where there's actually a failed treasury auction or yields go up enough on the longer end that the Fed has to step in and restart its magical money machine. But I think a third one is commercial real estate. And the office building area looks particularly precarious right now. And it's interesting if you look at some of these office-based REITs and they're taking out multi-year support, which in, the, in our view of, of the world, financial world is three years. So when a company breaks below a three-year support level, which right now I think is especially telling because that includes COVID still a little bit. Uh, so anything going below its COVID low, you go, oh, that's, that's not great. And you know, companies like Bornado and Hudson Properties and SL Green, I mean, they all just look terrible on a chart. So if, if we really are going to get a commercial real estate crisis, that's a big deal. And it's going to it's going to be another dagger to the heart to these uh, smaller banks. And that's really the last thing they need right now. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Do you how do you feel about exposure to the residential real estate market right now? I don't think that's as problematic in the U.S. The reason I, I've been more concerned about overseas is because, as you're aware, uh, many more mortgages, there's a much higher percentage of floating rate or very short-term mortgages overseas than there are in the U.S. The U.S. Yeah. people tend to have you know, long-term fixed-rate mortgages, even if it's an arm, it's you know, seven-year arm, 10-year arm, something like that. So I think that's different. And you didn't get the degree of overbuilding with single family that you had in uh, the 2000s, the you know, first decade of this century slash millennium. So it's, it is kind of an undersupplied market. So I think that that's positive. On the other hand, affordability is terrible. So you can say, yes, there, there need to be more homes built, but if people can't buy those homes, you know, it's, it's, uh, I'm a little perplexed by how much the whole building stocks have rallied here recently. 
Right. But where I think you got a more of a problem residential is with multifamily, where there has been a lot of overbuilding. And there's also this belief that many commercial buildings, office buildings, see-through office buildings can be repurposed as you know condos or apartments. And that's going on, but that's just going to create more supply in an already glutted multifamily market. Now, real estate's very localized. So when I make these sweeping statements, I'm, I'm talking in general, not for every single market. There's obviously exceptions to that. Yeah. But if you're perhaps you've seen this, that it's like only the, the vacancy rate, or I've said the unleased rate is only about 15%. So leases, you know, they're about 85% of office buildings that are leased up, but they're only about half full. And as those leases roll off, that's when I think you're really going to see a problem. And then, of course, with interest rates up significantly, a lot of this has to be refinanced. Uh, typically, commercial real estate loans aren't as long-term as, as residential. So to me, it looks like a pretty toxic brew. That's a really interesting stat. You said 15% uh, on lease. So that would mean that there might be 85% of a building leased, but only 50% actually occupied, which to your point, once those leases roll over, um, well, it's a significant challenge. We're seeing the same. So I'm close to Vancouver, British Columbia, and it's like, you know, a super hot real estate market for the last 40 years. And the, the calls for crashes are just persistent for in my entire life. And I, I don't know if we'll ever see something dramatic. I can show you headlines from the 1970s, right? Talking about Vancouver's real estate market in pretty much the same words they use today. So I, I, I think twice about it. And, you know, Canada's let in over a million immigrants um, this year, which for a country of 37 million people is a huge number, huge, right? And it's a tough, uh, Vancouver is also a very tough city to get anything done in, like, uh, you know, moving permits forward is near impossible. And so the inventory coming online is, is not nearly enough to satisfy the demand. You know, what's funny is, is I've, uh, I go to a lot of, um, you know, provincial candidate meetings over the last sort of year and a half. And I listen to the debates and, you know, who's concerned about what. And the one bipartisan argument that always surfaces is we need to solve Vancouver's housing crisis. And, uh, no one's ever got an idea how to do it, but every candidate <laughs> promises they're going to be the one, right, to fix it. And I just, it's the one issue that gets bipartisan support. Everybody in the room is nodding their head in agreement. Like, yes, we need to fix this crisis. You know, the crisis being that housing's expensive. And I just, I can't wrap my mind around it. I'm always the one person in the room. Like, why are we all pretending to be surprised that it's expensive to live here? I mean, stick your head out a window. It's beautiful in every direction. It's a small city. It's safe, predictable, and clean. The whole world wants to move here. Why would it be anything but crazy expensive? And I get that that's unfortunate. You know, I, I had to move to uh, Squamish, as we just said. I'm 45 minutes outside the downtown core because I have three kids and a four-bedroom house in Vancouver was just not something I wanted to try and swing. Um, so I get it. Okay, so I'm, I'm digressing now. So I want to back up to uh, the velocity conversation. I want to step back because, you know, I've spoken with Grant Williams many times about his outlook on the US dollar dominating as a world reserve currency. It's kind of his main focus right now and a lot of the content he creates. You know, can we step back and, and look, at, uh, look at this from a bigger picture? Do you focus on that? Do you focus on the transactions occurring globally like gold for oil, uh, the BRICS countries looking at alternative currencies and the potential compromise that might lead to for US dollar um, dominance? Do you, do you think about this, David? Is this something- oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, I've also listened, I think it's Brett Johnson, the dollar milkshake theory. And, mm. you know, I've listened to both, uh, you know, both arguments. And 
I guess my take on it is it's probably not quite so binary. I mean, I don't think we're going to wake up tomorrow and find out that the U.S. dollar's lost its reserve currency position. I think it's more eroding around the margins. And frankly, one of the big reasons for it, which is a relatively new phenomenon, is a problem that I think all the Western governments have, which is the willingness to play very fast and loose with the rule of law, which was always one of the strengths of the West versus, say, Russia or China, where the rule of law is whatever either Putin or Xi thinks it is. And it's almost kind of becoming that way with, you know, what does Janet Yellen think the rule of law or Joe Biden? And it's, it's become arbitrary. I mean, just look at what happened even in Switzerland, where you had a very controversial shotgun marriage between Credit Suisse and UBS, and where the bondholders, the cocoa bondholders, ATI, were wiped out. And yet equity got some money. I mean, they took a hit for sure, but they got something where they shouldn't have got anything if the bondholders were all wiped out. And it didn't have any shareholder votes. I mean, it was a very rapid, you know, desperate move. And it just seems like our policymakers are taking these big gambles more and more frequently and not thinking through of the knock-on effects. You know, our system is so based upon trust and confidence, but so many of these actions they're taking undermine that trust and confidence. And it's bizarre to me that with all this stuff going on in the world, that you have it's still a very expensive U.S. stock market, and you know, thirty-year bond yields sub four percent, and you know, negative. Usually, when you're in a low trust, low confidence, high anxiety world, you've got very high interest rates and very low PEs, and we've actually got the inverse of that, especially adjusted for inflation. So it's another one of the bizarre things out there that, uh, you know, probably, you know, you just trace it back to the Fed's magical money machine. They've created so many trillions since 2009 that, and I guess late 2008, that it, it has so much that's flowed into asset prices. But it's, of course, also flowed into inflation, you know, since the pandemic hit, which is when they really started practicing modern monetary theory, MMT. And the fact that that was done so rapidly with this so little forethought, I think that's also undermining the U.S. dollar long term. I mean, personally, I'm going to go out on a limb here, and and I don't know what the timing is, I, but I think it's closer than most people believe. I think the days of the fiat dollar are numbered. I think there always will be a dollar. I think there will be a new dollar, and I think that new dollar is going to be backed by hard assets, of which the United States is extremely lucky that we've got an abundance of them. I mean, as opposed to Weimar Germany which is, you know, we all are aware they had hyperinflation after World War I, which led Adolf Hitler to try to seize power the first time, which failed because partially and maybe mostly they had a brilliant central banker who came in and said, we're going to create a new Reichmark and it's going to be backed by the only real asset they had left. They didn't have any gold. It had all been sent overseas to pay reparations, but they had real estate. But just simply backing it by real estate. Now, the, you know, the old stuff was basically wiped out, worthless, the old uh, Reichsmarks. But the new one, I think they called it the Renton Mark, uh, actually worked. And it brought inflation down to normal levels. And they had the, you know, the 1920s boom and the whole cabaret, you know, scene from that movie. And But then, of course, the global depression hit. And then Hitler came uh, back and uh, was tragic almost incomprehensible consequences. Yeah. So, you know, it's just a way to say that economics matter. I mean, if you create a situation where people are really scared, and I see more and more Americans terrified when they look at forward and think about the future and they look at the state of the country. And so really bad things can happen when, when this set of circumstances dominates, unfortunately. 
But I do think that with the right policy mix, we'll be fine. I, I get people a little revved up when I say that I'm really bullish on the 2030s. I think once we get through this decade, we'll be in pretty good shape because for one thing, people like me will be increasingly dying off, which is <laughs> the biggest problem that the federal government's got is, you know, the boomer entitlements. Yes. It's completely, un there's no way. I mean, yes. Jeff Gunlock thinks they're like 150 trillion. Whatever the number is, it's, it's way greater than the U.S. has any possibility to repay with a viable currency, with a you know real currency. So it's going to have to be inflated away. But at some point, that inflation gets out of control. And then that's when I think you got to get the new dollar that's backed by a basket of hard assets. Oh, man. Okay. There's so much in there. <laughs> I told you it was controversial. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's so much in there. Okay. Uh, where do I want to start here? Let's let's go towards the days of the fiat uh, dollar are likely numbered and would maybe be supplanted by something backed by hard commodities, right? Fortunate that the United States has lots of them, right? Um, can you expand on... So actually, my first question before we get there, and this may be a, a juvenile question, but I'd love to know your thoughts. Are there advantages? Are there advantages to the U.S. losing uh, reserve currency status? Well, probably. I mean, I think it comes with an extreme cost. You know, the, you've got to be kind of the world's policeman, because if you don't have kind of the ultimate military might, or at least right up there, it's tough to enforce the reserve currency status. And obviously that's being challenged. Yeah. And, and I think when you look at what's happening with some of these transactions that are occurring, these agreements are occurring, whether it's China buying oil and being willing to convert that into gold. So people, countries like Saudi Arabia don't want to hold the renminbi, they can get it converted into gold. So it's kind of happening already with not the US, but with some other currencies or you know, these direct deals where Instead of having to use SWIFT to have, which is the U.S. clearing system, or using dollars, these company countries are more and more trading between themselves in their own currencies, and that's big because of one of the reasons that the dollar has been so persistently durable over the many decades is because it was needed for settling global trade. So, to the extent that companies are going to bypass that, you know, that's got to be a fairly significant marginal negative for the U.S. dollar's demand. But I think the biggest thing is that the I mean, you can say, well, there's a shortage of dollars. I've heard that. And maybe that's true. Maybe it's not. I, I say give it the benefit of the doubt that provides all these swap lines. So that's why I think that's a little questionable. But where there is a glut of dollars, de facto dollars is with the creation of treasuries. And I think you're going to be looking at what could be a one and a half to two trillion dollar annual deficit that needs to be financed with treasuries. In the, in the good old days, even when you know Reagan was running those massive deficits in the 80s, the bond market provided the financing and it was real money. It wasn't that the Fed was, was creating money out of thin air to buy the treasuries. But I don't see how that's going to happen this time around. That's why I think we could have a, a U.S. fiscal funding crisis. We could actually have long-term treasury rates go up in a recession. I think we're going to have oil prices go up in a recession. Those two things never happen. But I think the circumstances are in place right now where it could. <clears throat> so the fact that they can just create trillions and trillions of uh, de facto dollars at will, which are treasuries, you know, candy wrappers, as my friend Simon Mikhailovich refers to them, you know, that uh, it's just, yeah, there's kind of this 
momentum that's been behind the dollar and this mystique and you know, with some very practical applications and reasons. But I think everywhere I look, you're on a long-term basis undercutting the value of the dollar. Okay. Okay. Thank you for that. Sure. Um, I, I'd love you to expand on the concept of uh, hard asset or hard commodity backed currency moving away from fiat money and the advantages and disadvantages to that scenario. Well, I know the politicians wouldn't like it because it places a bit of a governor on their spending. Yes. You know, the resources by definition are finite, which yeah. is why I'm so bullish. And I should say that for 40 years, man, I've been in the business 44 years. It took me a couple of years to figure out Paul Volcker meant business in the early 80s. And I became a bond bull in somewhere in the late 1981, early 1982 phase. And I basically stayed that way for the following 40 years. But what turned my mind was when, you know, the reaction to COVID, when we really did MMT and the 10-year treasury rate got down to only a half a percent, 50 basis points, and inflation was already starting to, you know, to emerge. And by 2021, it was clear it was really accelerating. And you know, by the end of 21, the 10-year treasury was still only yielding one and a half percent with inflation that was running at six and seven. I think it was like you had to be brain dead not to realize that bonds were what used to be called when I first started the business, certificates of confiscation once again. Nobody wanted to touch bonds in the late 70s, early 80s, even though the situation was changing drastically with really big real interest rates, especially, especially by 1981. But they, they'd done so poorly that the collective memory was we hate bonds. Well, they've done so well since 1981 that the collective memory is, oh, you know, they're a great portfolio counterbalance. And for 40 years they were, but guess what? Last year they weren't. And that was one of the warnings of my book, Bubble 3.0, which we digitally published by a Substack in early 2022 to warn people that the traditional balanced portfolio was at risk. They were going to, at some point, I didn't know it was be quite so soon, lose money on both stocks and bonds. And that is, you know, kryptonite for a conservative investor. And, you know, we actually, you should probably know that, uh, well, globally, bonds were down 31% last year. In the U.S., it was more like 20 but worse than the S&P. That's just a double whammy. And that's why for balanced portfolios, it was the worst year since 1871, not 1971, 1871. So we were worrying about that because it just, it wasn't like past uh, you know, crises. I mean, you could have bought government bonds in the global financial crisis and done you know, pretty well, not, not as good as you would have with corporates and preferreds, which were at 1932 kind of levels. But this last time, it just bonds got down to such a low yield. And with MMT and hyperdrive, it's like, why go there? But uh, I, I just think things are different. This is not, and that's always dangerous to say in our business. I realize that. But I do think that this is a very different set of circumstances than we've, we've seen since the 1970s. And I'm old enough to remember the 1970s, unfortunately for me. <laughs> Maybe not for my readers. Yeah. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's, Let's use that as a segue into the entitlement scenario because, you know, a scenario I guess I'm, I'm watching is we've got a population aging to be withdrawing, right, to be drawing on these entitlements um, and a much smaller population paying into them, right? So the imbalance is large and growing. And I think this crisis is pretty immediate, right? We're, we're looking at this right now. And so, you know, what's your expectation for navigating a scenario that's 
completely unstable and unsustainable? Can we just paper our way over it? Is that what you expect to happen? And what's going to be the consequence of that? Or do you see some other um, solution uh, being proposed and attempted here? I think the powers that be will do everything they can to inflate away the debts, but it is a tricky game. They have to play this game periodically where they're, you know, like Jay Powell is doing right now, where he's trying to channel Volcker. But it's, I mean, when Volcker was crushing inflation by driving the prime rate to 21% in the early 80s, uh, very early 80s, like 1981, the debt to GDP, the government debt to GDP was only about 25%. You know, you put a one in front of that today. Or 25%, give or take a little bit. And, and I know that the, the way they report it varies. Some use the Social Security uh, government debt, some exclude it. I think you should include it because Social Security is now running deficits. They're going to have to start selling those treasuries. And by the way, foreign central banks are selling treasuries. They used to always be big buyers because they get all these surplus. Um, well, they get surpluses, our deficits. And what did they do? They would recycle those back into treasuries, which would further enhance the dollar reserve status. Well, now they're saying we want gold. Central banks was second biggest buying of gold uh, last year in history. So there's a that's another major change. Yeah. And then you, you've also got um, you know the Fed instead of being a buyer of a trillion dollars a year of government bonds under QE is now a seller of a, a trillion dollars a year with QT. That's a two trillion dollar delta right there. Then if you've got the government deficit exploding because of falling tax revenues and increased payouts, that's another big, I mean, I think it's four to $5 trillion this year versus last year. It's going to be the net net differential. And I just don't see how that can't create some kind of bond market riot. So what I think you're going to see is falling short-term rates at some point because the Fed's going to be fighting a recession. So yeah. they'll cut short-term interest rates. Long-term rates may actually go up you'll see a very rapid steepening of the yield curve, which by the way, is starting to happen. And that's a big deal. You know, we're going the way of the, the yield curve right now, but I think that's also been greatly underestimated that I can't, every time I career, I, the yield curve inverts, there's always a vocal chorus that says, ignore that. It doesn't matter this time because, and even some of my esteemed partners at GAPCAL have made that argument, but this was the third deepest inversion ever. And if you look at deep inversions versus mild inversions, there are no false signals. And part of it is that the yield curve is not just predictive, it's causative. So when you get this kind of a yield curve, it, it kills the banks because the banks are basically, they live on borrowing short lending long. Yeah. And when short rates are higher than long rates, they start going broke and guess what? That's what happened. Yeah. So where you really get the, the impending recession signal is when the yield curve begins to uninvert which is what we're seeing today. Now it's still inverted and it, you know, it kind of oscillates a bit, you know, depending on what's happened with the two-year treasury. But at some point I do believe, and I think some point this year, not two years from now, the Fed's going to be forced into a cutting mode because I think things are going to get really ugly. And I do believe they'll have to restart QE to prevent the long end of the bond market from just totally getting out of control. Interesting. I guess I'm sticking my neck way out. It's a good thing there's no guillotines around here. <laughs> I don't know. My audience is pretty ruthless. Yeah. Dude. <laughs> What's that? I said my audience is pretty ruthless. They might be the guillotine here. Yeah, well, it could be. <laughs> Look, uh, okay. So I want to back up to uh, we talked briefly about the weaponization of the U.S. dollar when we were discussing reserve uh, currency status and how the United States has kind of changed their philosophy and how they're perceived globally because you know 
to, to whatever degree you want to argue, they've been operating within the rules that they set and publicly they haven't been breaking those rules for a few decades, right? Now they're setting new rules in terms of how they may choose to weaponize the US dollar. They're playing the card that they've got, right? And over the weekend, you know, we maybe saw um, OPEC play the card that they've got, right? Are they starting to weaponize the oil supply, right? So we're looking at, if I've got the numbers right, it was a million dollar uh, decrease in output, sorry, million barrel decrease in output. Per day. Um, per day, yes. So a lot it's, of oil. it's a ton of oil. Yeah. And you got to think immediately what's this going to do. So walk me through uh, your reaction to those headlines over the weekend. Um, any initial thoughts on uh, what we could expect around the corner here? Well, first of all, I just want to put that in context, that number and why it is such a big amount. If you look back at the Great Recession, when oil demand fell very sharply globally, for the full year 2009, it fell about a million and a half barrels a day. And as you know, one of the big reasons why oil has been on the defensive is that it's just this constant refrain that bad economic times are going to lead to a fall in demand for oil. Yeah. And it, it, that could happen, but it would take very bad economic times to equal what happened during the Great Recession. But let's say it happens, one and a half million barrels. Okay, China reopening alone is one and a half million barrels, roughly. Then you've got India, which is growing. This is what's amazing how few people appreciate this is the developed world is really not, a, it's actually shrinking in terms of its oil demand and traditional energy consumption. But the developed world, developing world, rather, developing emerging world is a very different story. And India is the poster child for that. Their demand is growing about 500,000 barrels a day. How often do you read that? Almost never. Uh, then you, I mean, OPEC already agreed to cut 2 million barrels last year. Then Russia says they're going to cut 500,000 barrels. Nobody really believes them. And who knows what the Russians are going to do. But you've, and you've got kind of this underlying demand growth uh, combined with this is another one that doesn't get the press, is the only material growth, 90% of the world's growth of oil output over the last, de last decade has been in the United States, which nobody would have thought 15 years ago or even 10 years ago when it was actually starting to happen. And that's because of shale. It's mostly because of the Permian Basin. Permian Basin is unbelievably prolific. So U.S. oil production has gone something from something like 4 million barrels a day to 12, a little bit over 12. We're still not back up at the pre-pandemic peak because the other basins are going down in, in total output and the Permian is growing, but at a much slower rate. But I think that's why OPEC feels emboldened to do this, that for a while, the Permian effectively was the swing producer. And their belief was among a lot of oil bears that there was like limitless growth potential in the Permian. It's known as the layer cake because there's just, there's like 10 layers of produ production zones in the Permian or more. And so this idea that it could just, it was like a limitless source of, of oil production growth and natural gas for that matter is becoming less and less defendable. It's becoming more and more apparent that there is a limit to how much you can produce and that we're likely, we likely have exhausted the tier one rock down there. So now they're needing to, to frack and drill and produce from tier two uh, formations. So regardless, I mean, it's not what it was. I mean, it was the, the growth incline was very steep. It's now very flat. People that I really respect, folks at Gehring and Rosenzweig, they believe it's going to trend down. Mike Roth from Cornerstone Analytics, he's one of the smartest guys. He's my favorite oil analyst. He thinks it's going to start trending down. That's a huge deal. If the Permian is really hitting the wall from a production standpoint, 
And I think it's still going to grow a little bit over the next few years. But again, underappreciated shale wells deplete in their first two years of life at about a 40% annual clip versus three, four, 5% for conventional production. So, and, and the, that whole industry has been starved of CapEx going back for basically almost a decade. So it's, I mean, you've got this tremendous collision coming between rising, constantly rising supply and I'm sorry, constantly rising demand and either artificially or I guess voluntarily constricted supply and just kind of the laws of nature of physics that you're just not going to get the kind of production growth out of these shale basins that you had. So it's, I think it's a very scary combination. And that's why I say when you look at oil prices, which were recently under 70 in the U.S., that's nonsensical. And the fact that, you know, with the yield futures curve the way it was, you could go out and buy oil contracts in a couple of years that were, you know, like $64 a barrel. That, I still think that's one of the very best investments on the planet these days. Futures oil contracts that are at big discounts at this spot. So... A couple of things you said make me wonder, could, thinking back to the 2008 demand reduction, you said about 1.5 million barrels per day in demand reduction in the United States. Could some part of OPEC's incentive be just reading the forecast for America, American recession and saying, look, we've seen how this can play out. Maybe it's a smart time for us to drop our production in advance of drop demand. I mean, ignoring what you shared from you know China alone and India's growing by half a million barrels per day, but could they be looking, or do you think this is something different? This is more strategic reduction to, to inflate prices in the West, or what do you think is the incentive and, and motivation within OPEC? Well, first of all, just to be clear, that one and a half million barrels during the Great Recession was globally, not just the United States. Oh, I missed that. Okay, globally, one point, got globally. it. That makes so, sense. Okay. I've heard what you just said described as why they did this, that they're, they're worried that they're, uh, the market's too glutted. And it's like, wow, I mean, you look at inventories adjusted for the SPR, and that's what you have to do strategic bulk petroleum reserve releases. Yeah. They are shockingly low. I mean, like 40-year yeah. lows. It's just, yes. I mean, especially, and then if you look at it, because 40 years ago, demand was so much lower per day than it is today. So, you know, then it's really scary. I, I'm, I'm convinced they're fully aware of that. So I don't think this is an act of, well, we're worried about we need to be ahead of the recession and cut supply in advance of that. I don't think that's it. I think it's much more of a, you know, the fact that Saudi Arabia is increasingly pulling away from the United States clearly is not a fan of the Biden administration. And uh, this is the fact that, it, you know, the Biden administration, I'm afraid is going to blow it. I mean, they actually did a great job of selling oil. They're, apparently, their average sale price was $96 a barrel. So if they covered $70, $75, huge win for taxpayers. And they said they were going to do that. And then all of a sudden, then they're going to sell more oil. And I think this latest, you know, we're going to sell 27 million more barrels. I think that's what caused the Saudis to say, screw you. We're, we're turning the screws on you. And you're going, to, you're going to pay much higher prices over the course of the next few years. So I think it's really more of a power play on their part. I don't think it's any kind of a sense of, you know, we're scared about uh, economic conditions. Mm, okay. Does this, does this reinforce the concept of, you know, the new Cold War, right? Battle lines are being drawn between the West and the East and new alliances are being formed and countries are picking a side. 
and they're picking a side based on sort of what have you done for me lately versus what can you do for me now? Yeah, for sure. No, I think the world is fracturing. I think alliances are shifting. And, you know, I frankly, I think the United States needs to be very aware of India and really taking great care of India and doing everything they could to, you know, get them into our fold as much as India hates China. And, mm -hmm. and you know, the reality is India is going to be a much larger population than China before long. China is shrinking demographically. India continues to expand. It wasn't that long ago that China had 1.4 billion people, India had 1 billion. They're now both at 1.4, and one's still going up and the other one's going down. So that, I, think, I think we need to be much craftier geopolitically than we are right now. And uh, energy is hugely important in that regard. I think we've got this, this just kind of absurd notion that the world can run on renewables alone. And that if we lose access to fossil fuels, no big deal, maybe even good because it accelerates the transition to renewables. I think that, I mean, it's clearly didn't work for Europe. And we've seen that when people start freezing or their utility bills double, triple, quadruple, all of a sudden this commitment to what I call the great green energy transition really comes under a lot of pressure. And one of the worst manifestations of this is the fact that global coal consumption is setting records. And, you know, it's, it, it, that's bad stuff. I mean, when you burn coal, you are really releasing, unless it's got special scrubbers, which very few of them do because it raises the cost, you're putting a lot of effluents into the atmosphere as opposed to CO2, which is not a pollutant. You know, we hear, we get brainwashed that it's a pollutant. It's not a pollutant. But when you burn coal, those are real pollutants. Now, I know methane with natural gas, that's an issue, and that needs to be improved. And yet you look at, I don't know if you've ever seen these stats about the improvement of the U.S. air quality that's happened over the last 50 years, but it's been remarkable. And a lot of that's because of uh, catalytic converters, natural gas replacing coal, renewables to a certain extent. But I mean, there are more intelligent ways to improve the atmosphere than by trying to ban fossil fuels. And I think you're going to see more and more jurisdictions that say this, you know, you've seen like California, I think it's 2035, no more ICEs, internal combustion engines being sold and yeah. kind of the same in Europe. And I think people have said that just doesn't work. We've got to move away from that. So, but right now, I, th I think that's where they, some of these, uh, some of our adversaries are thinking, hey, this is great. The United States and Europe are trying to make their energy supplies more precarious. And as you think about it, when you become more EV renewable focused, you're putting your country more reliant on China because China controls so many of those essential inputs yes. for EVs in the whole you know, great, great green energy transition. Now, fortunately for America, I mean, Europe could have had, they, they used to have to be fairly energy self-sufficient, but they banned all fracking and they were closing down their nuclear power plants and coal plants, and they were just becoming increasingly reliant on Putin. Well, they found out not such a good idea. Yeah. Fortunately, America didn't do that. We are, and yet, ironically, the people that are most responsible for our energy independence are probably the most vilified people on the planet. Hmm. Yeah. Putin calls them pedophiles. And I think a lot of our intelligentsia would agree with that characterization, which is really unfair and, and kind of tragic. Yeah. Yes. You know, it's a, it's a key part of the conversation around uh, renewable energy that is missed. And that's, you know, this, uh, this moving away from fossil fuels for renewable energy, but, um, you know, the demand that would create the necessity of, of mining that would be born out of that. 
would be colossal. And it's not as if we could expect the same voices who are saying cancel fossil fuels to suddenly pivot and say, but permit every mine required tomorrow so that we can build the technologies required. Um, Precisely. And even, even going beyond that to the grid, and what, let's say you do get, you know, these solar farms put in place and wind farm, you've got to get the power to market. They're typically in more remote locations, which means you get to mostly put in new transmission lines. That is an unbelievable political battle. So it's, there's just so many, so many nonsensical things about this. And I'm not, I'm not negative to know the house I'm sitting in right now. It's powered by solar. We put solar in uh, just about a year ago and it's great. It, I think it definitely has a place just like I think EVs have a place, but I think we have to be realistic. And if we rush it and try to do it too quickly, we're going to get the kind of backlash we've seen in Europe. I've been writing about that for a couple of years before it started to happen, but you could see it coming. Yeah. Well, that's the danger of, of leading with, with, uh, with virtue signaling over uh, practical strategy, right? One scores you immediate political points and the other kind of gets a, a bit of a yawn. But um, unfortunately, we live in one world and not the other. Okay, you, you touched on demographics for a minute here. I want to I jump back to that specifically about India, because I hadn't really thought about this, David. You know, I, I think about uh, the Russian-China alliance, if you want to call it that. And the biggest Achilles heel that I see there is demographics, right? China got old before they got rich. I mean, simply put, and the birth rate is below two. It's something like reported at 1.8, but it's it's probably not true. It's probably closer to 1.6 or so. The replenishing rate is like 2.1. So, you know, Russia's in the same boat. You know, U.S. is kind of there just 40 years later. Um, but you, you talked about the, the demographic uh, outlook in India as kind of being the opposite. Honestly, I hadn't really looked at it or thought about it. Um, but when you speak about how they've caught up to 1.4 billion, as you know, that's where China's at, but a much younger population. Would India therefore be one of the healthiest demographic pyramids in uh, in an emerging and very very populated nation? Is that what do you think about that? Absolutely, that's for sure. And what's interesting from the standpoint point of oil demand or coal demand, which again I'm not a fan of very coal to produce electricity, but also LNG demand, is that their usage per capita is extremely low, way below what it is even in China, which is of course way below what it is in the United States. Yeah. So that's why I think even if renewables continue to gain market share, which I think they will, I think you're going to see more oil consumption in 2050 than you do today. And the same with natural gas. Okay. Hopefully coal starts to flatten out and go down, but I don't know. I mean, it's, it's for these developing countries, their view is, look, don't tell us what to do. And part of it is it's had some disastrous applications in places like Sri Lanka and parts of Africa where they've tried to do this accelerated great green energy transition and destroy their economies. So they're now becoming extremely reluctant to make, you know, do what we're doing. They're kind of going back to more traditional fossil fuels and saying, you know, you can't lecture us. This is how you developed. We're going to do it our way. Yeah. 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 Which makes sense. Okay. Would love to know what your portfolio looks like. If you are, Allocating capital anywhere right now where you've maybe got cash positioned, if you've got some, some buckets you consider safe haven, some buckets you consider speculative, as much as you can share or want to share on that, I'd love to hear it. Well, first of all, there's quite a difference between my personal portfolio and client portfolios. And the reason for that is I do something for myself that you just can't do for clients, and that's to sell short. 
and, and to a large degree. So I have a very large short book. I have a very large long book, which is heavily populated by real assets. But I was very convinced that 2021 was peak insanity. And particularly with the meme stocks and profitless tech and all these things, even good companies, but they were trading at 50 times revenues, not profits, revenues. So yeah. I did make a very big bet against that kind of stuff and a very big bet on energy in particular. I mean, I put out a note, one of our, at the time it was called Evergreen Virtual Advisor, which is still published. I just don't write it. So our, you know, the firm that I'm co-CIO of is Evergreen Gopcal, Gopcal being our partner firm that I referenced earlier. So it was December 2020, in the wake of COVID, I put out a note about the energy industry calling it totally toxic and linking it to the view of the tobacco industry 20 years earlier, which, you know, same type of thing, but for good reason. I mean, cigarettes do kill people, right? Uh, whereas a lack of energy kills people. So, but the stocks were viewed very similarly as, you know, you just, they were, I mean, Jim Cramer was shouting on CNBC almost every day, energy's uninvestable. Don't go anywhere near it. And you know, this is, of course, when it was trading at you know just absolute bombed out valuations. So that was um, that's one of the newsletters or editions I'm most proud of is telling people you should buy energy now, and you should hope that it gets treated like the tobacco industry did 20 years ago because Philip Morris has crushed the S and P mm. since the time that it was you know viewed as uninvestable. And I have to admit, I wasn't smart enough. I was worried about the you know the litigation liability, so I didn't buy Philip Morris at you know, 2000, I should have. But just the point that when something becomes that out of favor, and particularly when the investment logic was so flawed, this idea that we didn't need fossil fuels anymore, I was like, oh, are you kidding me? Come on. And I know enough about energy. No, that's not true. So yeah, that's what kind of my personal portfolio with clients where we, we don't play the short game. I mean, we have a couple of inverse ETFs, but very, very limited. So it's mostly we have kind of this barbell approach of very heavy short-term government securities. You know, I think the kind of the four and a half percent for one year is just a layup. Uh, but we do have, you know, besides energy, we've got I, I know very few people have a position in uranium. That's a that's a part of our portfolio. Copper. Uh, we do. We have been buying some financials here re recently because of all the chaos. And as I say all the time, that chaos creates opportunity. We've obviously had a ton of chaos there. And I think Charles Schwab is a very interesting play in that regard. They're kind of being tarred with the same brush as First Republic, and they're just much stronger that way. But I do think even for them, earnings are going to be challenged. Because one thing we were kind of touching on, we didn't really explain, is that when this money's going from zero return in the banking system to government securities at you know four four and a half percent, the banks are losing this low cost funding, and that applies to Schwab as well because they do own a big bank, the tenth largest bank in the country. So I don't care who you are, JP Morgan, you're going to have a hit to earnings because of the increased cost of capital. But still, I mean, these prices are down a lot. And, you know, there are eventually when we do see that kind of interest rate play that I mentioned before, short rates collapsing, long rates, maybe even rising, that will be good for the banks. Uh, you know, there's, you know, I guess we haven't, I guess we did fill on it today, but there's a telecom company that I think looks really interesting. It's one of the rivals of Huawei. I won't mention it by name just to be a little bit on the safe side, but you know, that's really been a triopoly, triopoly of the 5G telecom suppliers. And Huawei is basically banned in the West. So the other two, which are not American, are in a in kind of in the catbird seat, and one of them's really come down because of some idiosyncratic problems. So there's definitely opportunities out there, but I think basically the idea is have a lot of cash, 
be willing to deploy that cash when crises happen, which I find most people are unwilling to do. They might talk a good game, but when things are really under a lot of pressure, they tend to go into the fetal position. And we have shown over the years that we won't do that. People make fun of me as a perma bear, but you know, I was a buyer, very strong buyer in the spring of 2020, partially because we felt the Fed was going to buy corporate bonds, which everybody told me they wouldn't. It was illegal, not everybody, but almost everybody. And sure enough, they did. When they announced that, we we really went max in. Okay. And okay, oh, and then sorry, uh, sorry, one thing I don't because I, I I'm guilty of this too, but yeah. We write this financial newsletter, and the most popular part we found is our income recommendations. Okay, interesting. Frankly, I think most people in our business don't really kind of, if they buy bonds, they just kind of do a ladder and don't pay much attention. And, and we are, we've had a, a income, equity income type of portfolio that also includes corporate bonds for many, many years. And uh, there's some great opportunities there in, in kind of the double B space, and particularly with some of these energy names that got downgraded during the the twin busts of you know the last 10 years and yet they're just generating enormous amounts of cash and paying debt down debt like crazy i mean it's about as obvious an upgrade to investment grade as i've ever seen and yet you're still getting very good yields seven eight percent yields with intermediate maturities and if they go to investment grade you immediately get a capital gain because of that you know upgrade status got it okay and you mentioned uranium and copper and i'm curious um you're looking at producers i imagine and you know in uranium north american producers or where you look at good question with uranium we've like hamaco in the past we did really well on it a little bit early okay. uh, more than a little bit early but we we got a double but yeah. it's gone up about another 50 percent since then okay it doesn't look like a great value to me at this price to be honest with you compared to like the gold stocks where there's some of these that just look so cheap and yeah. generate a lot of free cash flow um but I do think physical uranium, which you can easily buy with Sprott, you probably know yeah. that one. Yeah. I think that's very attractive right now. Okay. So I would play it that way. Uh, whereas with oil, I like both the commodity and the producers, but with this one, it's really mostly the commodity. Mostly and the I don't know the juniors well enough. Maybe you know the junior uranium producers well enough, but to me, that seems like a real crapshoot. Yeah, <laughs> it's a good word to just use. It's a good word to use to describe it. Okay, and then on the copper front, are you uh, are you focused on how focused are you on geopolitical risk? Like, are you limited to certain countries? Are you concerned about nationalization and hypertaxation? Or talk to me about that a little bit. You no, know, that's that's all valid for sure. And you know, another reason why I think this you know, copper is going to be really essential in the great green energy transition. And some of these jurisdictions or countries are becoming much less willing to, to approve new mines and yeah. even threatening to close down existing ones. So yes, I think that's very valid. And I mean, we own Freeport with FCX. We like that one. It's very diversified enough that they don't have some geopolitical exposure. We own Copper Mountain, which doesn't have any. It's a small position Copper Mountain up in Canada. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's you know kind of a one, one mine company right now. And yeah. those are always risky. Yeah. But um, you know, I think Freeport is, is kind of easy. It's had a decent pullback, you know, although it's rallied recently. It's you know, I wouldn't put it at the very top of my buy list, but I think it, it should probably be in pretty much everybody's portfolio. Love that. Okay. Okay. Look, David, this has been a pleasure. I'm really glad we can make it happen. Thank you, Jay. Yeah. Let's, yeah, let's do it again. It's been fun. I'd love to. Yeah, I'd love to. Um, actually, I'd love to have you out at my conference in January. 
And uh, you'd know so many people there uh, would be peers of yours. It's a ton of fun. Two days, great people, great community, fun conversations on stage, great audience, super engaged, um, tons of fun. So I'll send you the details on that. If we can make that happen, that'd be awesome. Send me an invite. And where can we point people today? They want to find uh, more of what, more of the content you create, more about your products. Where can we send them? So go to Substack, Haymaker at Substack. And uh, if they try to order the book, it's not going to work, at least in, unless they just want the audio book. We've had a heck of a time getting a publisher. And we knew that going in. We knew that because of the imminent popping of Bubble 3.0, we had to go digital. And yeah. it's, it's available digitally at Substack, but I know a lot of people don't like to read digitally. Uh, but um, if somebody really wants a copy, a hard copy of the book, we did self-publish. We can send it to them. So please have them email us at Substack, Haymaker at Substack. And then it would be great if they signed up for our newsletters. Uh, again, it goes out twice a week. One is very market specific with kind of bailed recommendations. I mean, the SEC in the United States is really cracking down on people like me to be able to say, buy this, buy that, at least in writing. Eh? <laughs> Verbally, it's, yeah. it's crazy. You know, you hear on CNBC people talking their book all the time. And so uh, that would be the best way to get the book is just to email us and, and we'll send it. But again, these newsletters uh, and the other one is on Friday, we call it the highlight reel. It's just kind of the summary of stuff that, it, you know, that really jumped out at us during the week and from bright people like Grant and Jim Grant and on and on and on. We have a, you know, I'm, I'm very lucky that I've got so many people in my digital Rolodex that are so much, so much smarter than me. <laughs> I don't know about that, but okay. All right. Yeah. Bubble 3.0, go check it out. You know, I'm one of those people. It's, ridiculous but i will print out grant's entire 40 page letter and read it um i'll use both sides of the page i do my best <laughs> i do that too if that makes you feel any better you know yeah it just it's in luke Romans as well every week right. you know, I'm printing out 14 pages but i just i just like it i just like it I, i'm gonna hit you up i'm gonna send away for uh one of your independently published copies of bubble 3.0 i appreciate yeah. that Thank Once you. again, thanks for your time. This has been fun. It has, Jay. Talk to you soon. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor. Follow or subscribe to this podcast. Drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.